how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Genesis Part 6, Joseph and Jesus. I think most people are very familiar with the story of Joseph. If you were brought up in church, you were most certainly taught this in Sunday school. It's a story that appeals to children, the goody wins over the baddies in the end, and now Jason Donovan has made it very popular among young people with Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. Actually, that's probably a mistake. It was probably a coat with long sleeves rather than a multicoloured garment, though the New International Version says it was a richly ornamented. Certainly it was special, but it almost certainly had long sleeves. And the reason for that is that one boy was always given the job of foreman over the others. And while the others had to roll up their sleeves or wear short sleeves for work, the foreman had a long-sleeved coat. And Joseph was put in charge, therefore, of his brothers, and yet he was not the eldest. So you can imagine the situation that arose in the family. Anyway, that's beside the point. The important thing is that Joseph is the fourth generation, the great-grandson of Abraham. And yet, again, he's not the eldest. There's a clear pattern here. The natural heir does not get the blessing. God chooses in His grace who gets it. It's usually one of the younger ones. And yet, there's a great difference between Joseph and the previous three generations. God never calls Himself the God of Joseph. Angels never appear to Joseph, though they certainly did to the others. And then his brothers are not rejected. His brothers are included in the godly line of Seth. So there isn't the same contrast, though his brothers are not too good to him at the beginning. God never speaks directly to Joseph. Maybe you've not noticed that. Now, he certainly uh, reveals things in dreams and gives him interpretations of dreams, but he never actually talked to Joseph directly, nor, so far as his, the record goes, does Joseph ever talk to him. So there's a difference here. And when you read through the book of Genesis, you're aware that somehow Joseph stands on his own. Why? What's so different about him? Why are we told his story? Well, one obvious reason is that in the very next book in the Bible, we find all this family in Egypt in slavery. And somehow you've got to explain how they got there. And of course, the story of Joseph is the vital link of how Jacob and his family migrated down to Egypt for the same reason as Abraham and Isaac had once gone down to Egypt, for famine, shortage of food. Whereas Egypt doesn't depend on rain, it's got the Nile coming down from the Ethiopian highlands. So Egypt doesn't depend on any rainfall, it doesn't have any. It's got a constant supply of moisture in the Nile, whereas Israel, the land of Israel, depends totally on rain for the crops which the west wind from the Mediterranean brings. So, at least the story of Joseph is there to link us 
with the next part of the Bible. And the curtain falls after Joseph for some 400 years of which we know nothing. And when it lifts again, the family has become a people of many hundreds of thousands, but they're slaves in Egypt. Well, if that's the only reason that the story of Joseph is there, then it hardly explains why so much space is given to his story. We are told almost as much detail as Abraham. Abraham had, what, about uh, 12 chapters devoted to him, whereas Joseph has 36 to 50. No, I've got it wrong. Abraham had just about two more chapters, but Isaac and Jacob had far less. So what's so important about this man? Why are we told in such detail? Is it simply the example of a good man and a, a moral that good triumphs in the end? No, it's much more than that. There are at least four levels at which you can read the story of Joseph. The first level is simply the human level. It's a vivid story told superbly with very real characters. It's a great adventure, stranger than fiction. There are some extraordinary coincidences in it and you could really summarise Joseph's life in two chapters, chapter 1, down, and chapter 2, up. And that's what happened to him. He went all the way down from being the favourite son of his father to becoming a household slave, and he went all the way up from being a forgotten prisoner to being Prime Minister. It's an astonishing story. All the way down the social ladder, and all the way up again to the very top, something about that appeals to us. And in between we've got the envy of his brothers and, and the key to it all seems to be dreams. Mind you, I don't think Joseph was the most tactless, tactful person in the Bible. I think he was quite tactless. Fancy telling his brothers, I had a dream in which you all bowed down to me. <laughs> that is not the way to win friends and influence people but uh, it was the truth, he had the dream, <laughs> whether he should have shared it, but then we all mistake when we should share revelations from God, so we mustn't blame him for that. That's one level. It's a human story and it makes a jolly good musical show in the London West End and thousands will go to see it and many schools have put that on as well. Now the second level at which you can read the story is to read it from God's angle. God is in this story. Even though he doesn't actually talk to Joseph, he's behind the scene. He's the invisible God arranging circumstances for his purposes and plans. And he chose to reveal through dreams. People will accept things in dreams more easily than when they're awake. I have some very peculiar dreams, usually of arriving at a meeting on the wrong day with the wrong notes at the wrong time and I, I wake up sweating. It's more a nightmare. But it's funny, in dreams you accept anything as, as real and sometimes God needs to speak this way to communicate with us, but it always needs an interpretation. Now Joseph said these dreams were of God and that the interpretation would come from God. Daniel would be noted for the same gift. God is in fact the main actor in the story, though that doesn't come out in the musical. God is behind the scenes organising all this, no direct miracles, 
but providential circumstances. And often that is a way that God works. It's not so spectacular or so sensational, but God has a way of arranging meetings with people and the course of your life is changed. He's behind the scenes bringing about the fulfilment of his purpose. His overruling. This is the very opposite of believing in luck. I don't know if you know, but the Hebrew word for luck is gad, and you can either live by gad or by God. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase in a former day, by gad. That simply means by luck or the best of British luck, horseshoes at weddings and all that kind of thing. Amazing how many people live by luck. And the national lottery number this week is… And people believe that circumstances are the result of chance, of luck. But Joseph didn't believe that. He believed his circumstances were overruled by God and that God was behind the things that happened to him. Didn't see that at the time, but he saw it later. And you can often see God's hand on your life in hindsight where you didn't realise at the time what was happening. In fact, the key verse in the story of Joseph is found in chapter 45, verse 7, and this is what he said when he finally made himself known to his brothers after humbling them greatly and embarrassing them. He finally forgave them what they'd done to him, selling him into slavery, and he said this, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance." Now that's a very, very important statement. God sent me ahead of you. They thought they'd just got rid of their brother and sold him to some travelling camel traders as a slave, and that's that. And they took that special coat of his and covered it with the blood of a goat and took it back to poor old Jacob and said, we found this in the field. Your favourite son must be dead. It's a terrible thing to do, especially to old Jacob, but uh, God sent me ahead of you. See, God allows things to happen. He doesn't force anyone to do harm to another, but he does allow it. And sometimes he allows it for his own purposes. And that was the faith that Joseph had, God sent me ahead of you. And of course that was in fact the result because he became the minister of food, he interpreted the dream of Pharaoh that there would be seven fat years with good harvests and seven lean years to follow, and he said, we better store up food now and then we'll have enough to live on. And his foresight through that dream actually saved the whole nation of Egypt and his own family when they were short of food and came to Egypt. So he became their saviour. God actually wanted his people in Egypt, and this was how it happened. Why should God want them in Egypt when he'd promised them the land of Israel or the land of Canaan? The answer is given to, actually given to Abraham years previously. God said to Abraham, I'll have to leave your family in Egypt for 400 years until the wickedness of the Amorites is complete. In other words, God would not let them take the promised land from those living in it until those living in it became so dreadful that they had forfeited their right to their lives, never mind their land. So God is a moral God. He wouldn't just push people out and push his own people in. 
It was only when the inhabitants became so dreadful, and archaeology has revealed how dreadful, venereal diseases were everywhere in the land of Canaan. They were corrupt, they were decadent, and it was only when they reached the point of no return that God said, now you can have their land. So any uh, complaint about God's injustice in giving that land to the Jews is quite mistaken but he had to keep them out of the land until the state of the people in that land was so bad that uh, being pushed out of it was just judgment. But there were other reasons too. God wanted them to become slaves. It was all part of his plan to rescue them from slavery so that they would be so grateful to him they would then live his way and become a model for the whole world to see of how blessed people are when they live under the government of heaven. That was the plan. And so he let them get into such problems, working seven days a week, no pay, no land of their own, no money of their own, nothing of their own. And it was then that he reached down and rescued them with his mighty hand. So that you see, it all had to happen and God let it happen for his own purposes. He wanted to redeem them and rescue them so that they would know it was God who got them out and into their own land. So that's God's angle on the story. But we still haven't really got to the heart of the story. The next approach or level at which we could read it would be a study of Joseph's character. And this is a very remarkable thing because there is nothing said about Joseph that is bad. Now we've seen already that the Bible tells the whole truth about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and they certainly had their weaknesses and sins, but not one word of criticism is levelled at Joseph. I've told you already the worst thing he ever did which was just to be a bit tactless and tell his brothers about the dream but there's no trace whatever of a wrong attitude or reaction in Joseph's character. Even his reactions to going all the way down the social ladder, there's no trace of resentment, no complaining, no saying, why has God done this? No, no sense of injustice that he should finish up in prison on death row in Pharaoh's jail. Furthermore, even though he was far from home and totally unknown, he maintained his integrity when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. And when she tried, his reaction was, how could I sin against God? Like this. And you know that she falsely accused him then, which put him on death row in the jail. But not one word of criticism even of Potiphar's wife. This is an astonishing portrait. Furthermore, the man, even at rock bottom, his concern seems to have been primarily to help others. There was Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker on death row, and Joseph sought to comfort them. He is a man who seems to have no concern for himself, but a deep concern for everybody else. And all the way down, he never once questioned God never once doubted that God knew what he was doing, whereas we do. And then his reaction to going up to the top 
I don't know which is the bigger test of a man's character, being taken all the way down to the bottom or being lifted up to the top. I think probably the second is the biggest test of his character. But look at his reaction to the brothers who'd sold him into slavery. He gave them food and he wouldn't charge them for it. He put the money back in their sacks. He forgave them with tears. He interceded for them with Pharaoh and he purchased for them the best land in the Nile Delta, a land called Goshen, and said, I'm going to look after you. They'd thrown him out and told his old daddy was dead, but here he is providing every need of this. What a man! So Joseph is unspoiled either by humiliation or by honour. He's a man of total integrity. He's the only one so presented in the Old Testament. There isn't any other character presented like this. Even King David, you know what his faults were, and you will find in every other full portrait we get the whole picture, but here the whole picture seems to be blameless. It's very unusual. We read of David's sin, we read of Elijah's cowardice, we read all the weaknesses, and we know that, as the New Testament says of Elijah, they were men of like passions to ourselves, but here's a man who has utter integrity. There's only one person in the Old Testament like this and there's only one person in the New Testament like this. You know who that is. Now there is one chapter in the middle of the story of Joseph that comes as a shock. It's about his brother Judah. And if you've read through Genesis recently, you must have felt what a shock it is. Suddenly in the middle of the story of this good man, there is actually a contrast in his own brother Judah, a man who visits a prostitute who is actually his daughter-in-law with a veil on and incest happens and it's a sordid story. And suddenly that story comes right in the middle of Joseph. It's almost as if to highlight Joseph and to say his brothers were bad people, but Joseph wasn't. The contrast is marked. I can only think of that as the reason why that sordid instance of Judah is put right suddenly in the middle with no connection. As if just as Abraham had a contrast with Lot and Ishmael with Isaac and Jacob with Esau, it's as if here's a brother who highlights the integrity of this man. So we're getting very near to the reason why the story of Joseph is there, but we haven't yet got there. I want you to put together in your minds the three levels at which we have discussed this story so far. The human story of a man who was taken all down to the bottom and then right up to the top and who became and is called the Saviour of his people and the Lord of Egypt. Then we're looking at God's overruling of this man's life that he allowed that to happen and planned it to save his people. And then we've looked at a man of total integrity who all the way down and all the way up remained a man of truth and honest goodness. Who does that remind you of? The answer is Jesus himself. Joseph becomes what we call a type of Jesus, a foreshadowing of Jesus way back in the Old Testament. It's as if God is showing us in the life of Joseph 
what he was going to do with his own son, that his own son like Joseph would be rejected by his brethren and taken all the way down to utter humiliation and then raised to be Saviour and Lord of his people. It's all there and the parallels are remarkable. And the more you read the story of Joseph, the more you see this picture of Jesus as if God all along knew what he was going to do and was going to give hints to his people. We find that all the way through the Old Testament. One of my favourite little books is called Christ in All the Scriptures by a lady called Mrs. A. M. Hodgkin. Any of you know it? Lovely little book and she just goes through every one of the 66 books in the Bible and shows us Jesus in that book. You see, Jesus himself said, search the Scriptures for they bear witness of me and yet he's talking about the Old Testament. Now when you read the Old Testament, you should be looking for Jesus, for his likeness, for his shadow. Jesus is himself the substance but his shadow falls right across the pages of the Old Testament and especially in Genesis. Now once you've seen that, that Joseph is a picture of Jesus, of God's answer, as Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are models of our faith in God, Joseph is a model of God's response to that faith and how he can take the life of a man and deliver his people from their need and lift him up to be Saviour and Lord. Once you've got that key, you start turning back the pages of Genesis and suddenly you find Jesus in so many different places. And I just want to take you through five of them. There are others that you can look for. The first, all the genealogies of Genesis are in fact the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read Matthew 1 and Luke 3, you'll see those genealogies. You'll find in Luke 3, 24 names from the book of Genesis. He is in this line of Seth. That line comes straight down to the son of Mary. So we're reading his life line. And if you are in Christ, you are reading your own family tree. This is our genealogy. These are the most important ancestors we have because through faith in Christ you become a son of Abraham. You become part of this line. You are in Christ and you've inherited this history. So you're not reading about their history now, you're reading about our history now. This is your family tree. Uh, my wife and I went to Petworth House. That's not far away from here, is it? bit further east, not long ago for a day out and uh, that was owned by the Dukes of Northumberland, the Percys and coming from Northumberland I was very interested. I went to college with one of the Percys and uh, so I was interested when I saw their family tree on a long chart on the wall and you know it went right back to Adam. They traced their family tree back to Adam, the Percys of Northumberland. I felt like saying, I could do that. If only I knew some of the names and the gaps, but I could do that. We all go back to Adam, but we all go back to Abraham. In Christ, this is our genealogy because it was his. It is Jesus' family tree that you're reading in Genesis. Oh, but there are much deeper links than that. 
The next thing I want to say is that again and again you look at someone in Genesis and you see Jesus. You look at Joseph, you see Jesus. You look at Isaac and you see Jesus. Let's go back to the time when Abraham was told to offer Isaac. He was told to go to a mountain, a specific mountain. Years later that mountain was Mount Maria, Mount Golgotha, Mount Calvary, the place where God sacrificed His only begotten Son. It's interesting that in Genesis 24 it says Isaac was Abraham's only beloved son. And I've told you already that Isaac was not a boy, he was in his early thirties when that happened and therefore he was strong enough to resist his father but he submitted to being bound and put on the altar. Now God stopped Abraham at the crucial point and provided another sacrifice. It was a ram with its head caught in thorns. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I don't like the word lamb applied to Jesus. It's always portrayed as a little cuddly, white woolly thing in stained glass windows. It's a ram. No sacrifice was offered of a little cuddly lamb. It was a one-year-old male ram with horns. And Jesus in the book of Revelation is the ram with seven horns. It's not a little cuddly picture. It's a strong picture, a ram of God. And God provided a ram for Abraham to offer in place of his son, a ram with his head caught in the thorns. And God gave a new name to himself, I am always your provider, Yahweh, Yireh, God my provider. And in that very mountain centuries later, another young man in his early thirties was sacrificed with his head caught in the thorns. Do you see there a picture of Jesus? And what about that strange encounter Abraham had with a man who was both a king and a priest and who was king over the city Salem, which later became Jerusalem. And when Abraham was on his way back from a big battle to rescue his family who had been kidnapped, came back with the spoils from the enemy, and as he came near the city of Salem, which was then a pagan city, nothing to do with the, this godly line, but there was this strange figure, Melchizedek, a priest and a king. That's a very unusual combination, never found in Israel. And this king-priest brought out bread and wine for Abraham and his troops to refresh them and restore them. And Abraham gave him a tenth of all the spoils of the battle a tithe of the treasure. And in our New Testament it says Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Another little glimpse of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Jacob's ladder. Do you remember Jacob, the day he ran away from home, sleeping out at night with his head on a stone as a pillow and he dreamt and he saw not so much a ladder as an escalator. The Hebrew implies the ladder was moving and there was one ladder moving up and one ladder moving down and there were angels ascending and descending and he felt that at the top of the ladders was heaven where God lived. And he woke. That's when he promised to give a tenth of everything he made to God. Now, you see, a tithe was never part of the law until Moses. 
This was Jacob's offer of a tenth to bargain with God. If you bring me back home safely, I'll give you a tithe. But you can't bargain with God. You can't make a contract with God. God makes a covenant with you. He had to learn that the hard way later. Centuries later, when Jesus met a man called Nathanael, he said to Nathanael, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. I noticed you. And you're a Jew in whom is no guile, no deceit. You're an honest Jew. And Nathanael said, How did you know that? He didn't deny it, <laughs> but he acknowledged that uh, Jesus knew him intimately. And Jesus said, You think that's wonderful? What will you think if you see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? An amazing thing to say, isn't it? He's saying, I'm Jacob's ladder. I'm the link between earth and heaven. I'm the new ladder. Do you see Jesus in that instant? Jesus did. Let's go way back to Genesis 3. God made a promise, even in the middle of his punishment, he said to the serpent that the seed, and the word is male, the seed of the woman will bruise your head even while you bruise his heel. Now, bruising a heel is not fatal, but bruising a head is. And that's the very first promise that God would one day deal Satan a fatal blow. Who was this male seed of Eve who would do that? Well, you know who it was. It was the one who bound the strong man and spoiled his goods. Let's go further back still to something I mentioned a few talks ago. Romans 5, Paul says, As one man's disobedience brought death, so one man's obedience brought life. He is saying that Jesus is a second Adam. And both happened in a garden. It was in the Garden of Eden that Adam said, I won't. And it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus said, Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. There's a contrast here. They both began a human race. Adam was the first man of Homo sapiens. Jesus was the first human being of Homo novus. I was born Homo sapiens. I'm now Homo novus. The New Testament talks about the new man, the new humanity. In fact, there are two human races on earth today. You are born Homo sapiens. You're born again Homo novus. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's a whole new human race and it's going to inhabit a totally new planet Earth, indeed a whole new universe. Let's go even further. I suppose the most remarkable thing of all said about Jesus in the New Testament is that he was responsible for the creation of the universe. That a carpenter from Nazareth should ever be attributed with such an amazing achievement. But the early disciples came to see that Jesus was involved in Genesis chapter 1 and that, as they later said, without him nothing was made that has been made. I once had the privilege of speaking at an open-air meeting in Canada in a place that had never seen a Christian meeting before, right in front of the Niagara Falls. Now, that's a backcloth. 
and it was televised to the whole of Canada and parts of USA. There were three speakers. I was put on first, then a Catholic priest, then a Pentecostal pastor. Uh, I'll tell you what we actually talked about. We all talked about honeymoons. We hadn't prepared together but actually Niagara is one of the honeymoon capitals of the world. All the hotels have bridal suites around the falls, but that's beside the point. When I got up to speak, I said, I'd like to tell you that I know the man who made the Niagara Falls. I said, I met him when I was 17 and uh, we've been friends since. Well, they looked at me sideways as if I was crazy. I said, his name actually is Jesus and without him, nothing was made that has been made. So I said, he made the Niagara Falls. I said, before he made chairs and tables, he made the trees so he'd have some timber. And before he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he made the mountains so he'd have a pulpit. Now, this is incredible really, isn't it? That a carpenter from Nazareth should be involved in creating our universe. So when you read Genesis 1, do you see Jesus there? He's there, he's in the us. Let us make man in our own image. You now know, we've known for some 20 years, that we're on an eggshell really, on flat plates of rock floating on molten rock and these plates are constantly moving, rubbing against each other, causing earthquakes. We're in a very delicate position really. We're just standing on these plates and when this was discovered, and the continental drift whereby the one piece of dry land that we read about in Genesis 1 drifted to become the continents of today, the scientists needed to coin a new word for these plates and do you know what they called them? Tectonic plates. And do you know what the Greek word tectone means, the word from which that adjective was coined? Tectone means carpenter. Now, I don't know if they were conscious when they chose that title. What a title! The whole planet Earth on which we live was the result of a carpenter's work from Nazareth and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we finish our studies today where we began. We began with creation. We finish with Jesus Christ through whom the world came to be and for whom it was made and by whom we discover the answer to our questions. For he is called in Genesis, in John chapter 1, he's called the Logos, the Word, but it means much more than the Word. John wrote his Gospel in Ephesus and 500 years before John wrote that Gospel, a man lived in Eph Ephesus called Heraclitus. He was the first real scientist and he taught his students to observe and study what went on in animal life, in, in, the, in the weather. And he said, everything you observe, you must find out the reason why it behaves like it does. But the reason why in Greek is logos. And that's become the title of every branch of science. Ology means the reason why.
Biology is the reason why life behaves as it does. Zoology, the reason why animals behave. Psychology, psychology, the reasons why our minds behave as they do. Sociology, the reason why groups behave as they do. Meteorology, the reason why the weather behaves as it does. But every branch of science only looks at the reason why part of our universe behaves like it does. Nobody seems to be interested in the reason why it's all here. And the answer is Jesus is the reason why. He is the Logos of the whole universe. It was made for him and through him and by him. And to him be all praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org. 